I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a brand new edition of Collider Ladies Night. Yet another Yellow Jackets edition of Ladies Night, because I can't stop. Simone Kessel, welcome to the show. Congratulations on Yellow Jackets. And I just can't wait to overwhelm you with all of my obnoxiously specific theory type questions right now. Oh, I hope I can answer them all. Thank you so much for having me. There is a lot of specific lines of dialogue and reaction shots I want to get to. But first, I think this right here is the most stressful part of Collider Ladies Night. You're about to play dicey questions with a dice tower behind me. So I have eight random questions here. You get three rolls on the tower and whatever I roll for you, that is where our conversation begins. My goodness, okay. First roll up. Eight, we've got a number eight, which is, a lot of these are yellow jackets specific, but this one is actually more a broader acting question. This one's called high low. Can you give me one audition high, but then also tell me one audition low and what you learned from it that you were able to apply to future auditions? Uh, Okay, so one audition high. Uh, Well, many the auditions when you go in and you nail it and you come out and then as you're driving away, your agent calls and you're like, yes, because they never call to say, really, how did it go? They're calling because casting has already called. So my worst audition moment, it was a callback with, uh, for a comedy with Lisa Kudrow. And I was so excited and it was such a long time ago and I was really, really excited. And I was very nervous. I got very, very nervous. And I did my shtick, I did the scene, and as I went to walk out of the room, I walked into the wall okay. <laughs> because I was so nervous. And I walked into the wall and they thought it was part of my shtick, my comedy routine, but it was actually me. And then I played it like, yeah, walking through the wall. And then I sort of walked out and I was like, oh my God, where's the door? I couldn't get out of there fast enough. So that is the worst thing that's happened to me in an audition. Um, I, I don't act. This is this is the most relatable answer to this question I've ever heard in my life, though. Like, I, I would do that. And it was just so funny how I tried to cover it 
with the ha ha walking into the wall and they're like oh my god she is so funny she's so funny <laughs> it's so bad and what you learn from that is you could do physical comedy in a future performance hey you didn't get the job though <laughs> but you got the one that mattered it's yellow jackets and a whole bunch of other stuff we're going to touch on but first you have your second role in the tower we are going to a number one and number one is a yellow jackets question so i'm calling this one mine so you as in real you you're in a yellow jacket situation you are on a plane it goes down in the wilderness but you manage to find your suitcase what is something in that suitcase that could help everybody but you don't want to share it and you keep it secret so you could have it all to yourself I love your mind. Oh, well, the obvious choice is, you know, is food and beverages, um, hydration, vitamins. Um, what would be the thing I'd be like, I'm not sharing. You're giving smart answers. My thing is toothpaste because I'm like neurotic with my teeth. And like, what happens when we run out of toothpaste? I want to be able to ration mine myself. You just have to really like get the corner of a towel and scrub your teeth. I think, yeah, no, I would, I would definitely be hoarding my vitamins and any of my personal products, even a good moisturizer, because I imagine your skin goes quite dry in the wilderness. Um, yeah, I think all my... Yeah, I think I, I do. When I come to Los Angeles, I always do buy lots of uh, protein bars. So I think they might be in my suitcase. I, I'm going to hoard those. Okay, I'm going to give you a recommendation. Have you been to Creation? This show is not sponsored by Creation. Have you been to Creation in Los Angeles? They have oh, the best protein bars. They're made with whole ingredients. <laughs> I know everything that's good there. You get there and you're like, oh my goodness. What do I have? Yeah, no, I actually went last time I was there and had the best smoothie, and I think I bought some yeah. power bars as well. So, Oh, I'm full-blown addicted to that place. You have one last roll in the tower. It went on the floor, but I see a number six. Oh, lucky. No, number six is also a Yellow Jackets question. This is, this is more for you, though, as an actor. I'm calling this one burning question. If you could have one burning question for the future of the show or what has happened in between the 90s and the present day material, and you could ask the showrunners and get a legitimate answer to it, what question would you pose to them? Well, I think the question really is once they're rescued, don't you think? The fallout... And I, and I think they'll show that. I think they'll write that. I'm hoping that's a season. I think it's the once they're rescued, what the response is from everybody. Like, you know, the, the kind of what is the word when you're coming back in, the re-entry. The re-entry into society is the timeline I really want to see. Um, and, I, and I also think for Lottie, we got, we got a little moment of, of Lottie's re-entry and it didn't go so well. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing where Lottie goes after the institution to get to her her um, compound, her cult. Oh, I have questions about that period of her life, and I will be asking you some of them, whether the answers are canon or not. All right, but before we get to Yellow Jackets, we always start every edition of Collider Ladies Night here. What is the movie, the performance, personal experience you had, you name it, that first made you say to yourself, I have to be an actor and nothing else? I think it was a stage performance uh, I think being on stage, once you get over the initial nerves, is everything, is, 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 is being a, a collaborative, creative on a stage, 
and performing night after night is just the a buzz. It's beyond anything. So when I was young, I did a, a quite a bit of theatre and that's where I really got the bug and I really fell in love with with acting and what what you can what you can achieve and how you can take people out of their day to day for a moment or an hour or you know so for me growing up on the stage was really really like oh, I need more of this um, and then I fell in love with the idea of, of film and television because you get to do something new every time um, and now it's all I know it's all I want to do. You get that itch. You want to be an actor. At the time, what did you think step one was to becoming a professional actor? And now having done it, would you recommend that step to another aspiring actor? Or did you find something that was more effective along the way? I wish there were magical steps that you could go number one and number two, and then you will get to step 10. However, um, I think I think just doing the work is really vital and, and really important and not being... Uh, trapped in the world of what you imagine fame is going to be like and what it's going to do because it's so accessible now that we have social media and you know we can we can do this so I think you've got to take the idea of fame and your expectations out and just stay on your path and do the job in front of you and whether that's auditioning whether that's just reading whether that's um working out or whether that's doing classes, whatever it is, you have to, they're the steps. And I wish somebody had said, just keep going with that more because you get a bit lost along the way. I think when you're, when you're a young actress and, and you're like, am, am I good enough? That's the other thing, you know, do I look right? Am I, am I the right person? And what I do realize now, which I wish I'd said to my younger self was it's not personal. It's not about you. It's not, you know, it's if you're right for the role, and uh, and just trust trust the process. And if you love it enough, you'll get there. And each audition is one step closer to getting the, the dream role. As uh, someone who is a mighty sensitive individual, the audition process when you're an actor is one of the, the many things about the craft that just, like, it doesn't even just blow my, like, I can't fully wrap my mind around how you do that so often, but but it's, it's part. Someone once told me that they had to start considering um, auditions as, as like the job, like not looking if they're going to book the job, but the, the audition itself being the job. And that way, no matter what happens, you leave with some sense of closure and satisfaction. That's exactly right. And that's what I do after each audition. I put the sides in the bin and I walk out of there and I did, and I say, I've done my job, you know, and obviously you, re you really want the result to happen if it's a role you really want. But I think being an actor is 90% the prep and the audition and and getting through that and then the rest is playing but you've got to really do your work and i and i say my advice is to to actors know your lines drill them drill them so that you can just throw them away so that anything that happens in the audition you're ready you know you're ready to go and i think that, and and then when you get over your nerves use your nerves in a way that you can channel something as well there's so many techniques and that's why i think doing classes is vital learning it's like going to the gym you can't just do one class in boxing and then call yourself a boxer you know you have to keep doing it so yeah that's that's my advice because then you get over the nerves because you've done the work so you can be more present you know and don't create the expectation of what you think this role is going to bring to your life because then yes. that, that takes the nerves away just do the job can you maybe share one specific early lesson you learned in a, in a class or from an acting coach that, you know, maybe even years later you still find coming in handy? 
Yeah, someone just said to me every night, read for 15 minutes in a dialect of your choice. So sometimes I'll do a Scottish accent or sometimes an Irish one or ones that I'm having real difficulty with. And that's really great because you're not only learning, reading out loud, you're, you're practicing a dialect because you never know tomorrow I could get an audition to do an Irish accent and I'll be like, ha well, you know, and, and I think from become, being an Antipodean and coming from down under, you have to learn to do accents or you don't really work. So most of my work I do in an American dialect. So that's hours and hours and many, many books of reading at night out loud in a, in a U.S. accent. So that's what I would say. Practice your accents. Yet another thing that is most impressive. I could never. The only thing I can if someone said like a super short sentence and like the second after I could repeat it, then maybe I could do it. But I could never do. a It would be fine. It would be fine. Oh, you have too much faith in me in that department. Um, So I did want to talk a little bit about making the move from the New Zealand film industry to Hollywood. I I have many questions about that. First, when you did make that leap, was it a deliberate choice where you said to yourself, like, now is the time that I want to start doing Hollywood projects? Or did something just kind of come up and get that started? Well, I think for, for most actors in Australia and New Zealand, the big calling card is always pilot season. It gives you three months of going to Los Angeles, getting a manager usually, depending on what work you have behind you. And then you get to Los Angeles and you do pilot season. Pilot season doesn't really exist as as much as it used to. It was kind of like you fly in in January, you audition, see what happens, and then you're out by March. So that was always something that I would come over for and uh, be prepared for and hope for. And then if it doesn't sort of happen, then it's very difficult getting a visa and the whole process of of getting a visa unless you're sponsored on a job. So you kind of come and you you throw everything at the wall and hope something will stick. And then if it doesn't, you come back and then you go the following year. Um, So that's really what that was about. And then also a lot of productions are filmed down here as well. So that's a great opportunity to kind of meet people from the US and say like, hey, hi. And, you know, I started out when I was very, very young on a show called Xena and Hercules in a, in a, yeah. Yeah, in New Zealand. And I was like, I was so young. I think I was 16 and, you know, working with Kevin Sorbo and people like that and the beautiful Lucy Lawless. And, you know, you got to, you got to kind of really learn the, the accent, working with, on an American set, those things. And so eventually you kind of, you fall into line and there's so many amazing Australian and New Zealand actors in Los Angeles, in, in Hollywood. And um, yeah, it's just- you got a couple on your show. <laughs> got a couple on my show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's four of us. There's, there's Liv, Melanie, Courtney and myself, yeah. So you have to, you got the opportunity to learn a little bit about the Hollywood system and the way of uh, doing production that way via sets like that. But I'm kind of curious about the opposite because I'm a little obsessed with the vibe that I hear exists on most sets in New Zealand. And I don't know, it just seems like you're doing things there that would benefit any set in any part of the world. So what is something specific to the way you shoot a New Zealand production that you think would benefit another set somewhere else if they adopted and used in their production process as well? Well, there's less people and there's less unions. So if I'm on set and somebody's like, oh, we need to like move this over here, I as the actress would be like, coming. And I, you know, we all help each other. It's so lovely. There's no, the world of trailers, we don't have you know, trailers like that. We all have one big trailer, a green room, which we all sit in and we laugh our heads off and 
that's it. You have no personal dressing room in New Zealand. So everything is way so much more. It's just, it's not as flash and showy. You know, there's just, we don't have crafties. We have a tin of biscuits and a cup of tea, you know, like that's so, so even to this day, when I go on big American sets, I'm like, when I look at crafties and I've, I've said this before, I always go and I'm like, and the little Maori New Zealand girl in me goes, and it's for free. <laughs> I don't have to pay. And I can order anything I want, you know, like, because in New Zealand, seriously, it's like, oh, wait for lunch. Lunch is in a few hours, then you get something to eat. <laughs> but it, it's really lovely. And that's kind of like, there's no show pony. There's no hierarchy. Everyone's there to do a job. And I recently did a film, well, I guess now two years ago in, in New Zealand called Muru, and it was a Māori film. And it was just with Cliff Curtis and, it was just so wonderful at lunchtime. They brought out the guitar and everyone's singing in the local marae where we were filming, made a big lunch and we had karakia and prayer and seafood. And it was just, it was wonderful. So that's the difference. There's a very, it's, it's just a lot smaller and there's a lot less money, but you're doing it because you love what you're doing. So I had the opportunity to see that at TIFF. The fact that you were all able to do with less money what other productions do with significant budgets is is really something else that should be recognized. Right. And 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 Mudu, I'm going to say the budget on that was like five million. Like if that it is a full-blown action movie. <laughs> Some of the work you all do in that looks like it would require far more. Right. And so, and that's it. And you do it. It was such a joy to make. And it's it's just so different. And Australia is very similar. You know, there's it, everything is very small here as well, unless it's an American production that's come over. Mm -hmm. So you really you really learn to be very grateful in in both worlds. And you're much closer to your crew. I would say in Australia and New Zealand, and I really like that because I, I love crews and I love, I love the work ethic and being on set and and all being such a family for an intense short of time. So, yeah, that's and and look again on the like say on Yellow Jackets it was a huge crew and many units, and you don't become as close to your crew, but um, you definitely get that opportunity here, and so I think that's a good grounding as an actor moving into the world of, of Hollywood. I definitely like gravitate towards that vibe more so than anything. One day I will visit a New Zealand set. I hope so, I hope so, I'd love that. I would love, I, I had an opportunity for a set visit once and I couldn't go and that's one of my biggest career regrets ever. I wish I dropped whatever else I was doing and went on that trip. What film was it, do you remember? What was the set? I feel like it wasn't it wasn't Thor because Thor was Australia. Like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, Sydney. It was a via. It was a maybe it was a Weta thing. It might have been. It might have been. Uh, it might have been something for Alita Battle Angel. Oh wow! If I remember correctly, it was definitely a Weta opportunity. Yeah, great. Well, you have to. You one day. One day. One day. <laughs> Let us jump into Yellow Jackets Fall okay. Force. Seven million questions. Um, first question: What would you say is the biggest difference between how you pictured Lottie day one when you booked the role, and then who she became the more you prepped and dug into the character? I didn't know that the arc of her mental health would be what it was. You know, and so. Um, I came into Lottie really in the power of being this this beautiful, gracious, social, spiritual healer. And then where she ends up is just huge. And I, I think around episode maybe five or six, 
I started to understand the decline, so to speak, or the fact that she really falls apart. Um, and even watching it now, and I, I'm kind of stunned too, because when you're in it, you're so in it. And and I have to say that last episode, it broke my heart. It broke my heart for obviously for the Natalie moment, but it broke my heart to see Lottie so traumatized and broken and really in that, you know, she's in a, she's in a state. She's in an absolute state. And so when I watched that, I was, I was kind of really taken with where I went and it, you know, it makes me kind of like, it just makes me so much more um, compassionate and understanding for people who are going through mental health and, and, and being true to that, you know, and watching it back, I don't recognize myself in that at all. And um, I guess that's the job of the actor, but um, yeah. So understanding where she started this glorious, you know, golden healer to this absolutely broken woman was, is pretty extreme. I will say though, something you like teased, but didn't full, fully tell me truthfully at the junket. It, it was something, it was something like she has a heart of gold or her intentions are pure. Even where things ended up, I, like, I believe that that is true from start to finish. Her intentions remain pure from beginning to end. It's just her mentality and her way of going about yes. it. So many people are like, she's the bad, she's the bad one. She's going to, but she wasn't. Her intentions are pure and she just gets lost along the way because of her mental health and the and PTSD and obviously what's happened to all of them. And, and that's just such a sort of clever way of, of peppering it in along the way. You and Courtney do a beautiful job with that. Just the the whole, I love the whole idea too of, I think the, the line in the show is like, like she's like this because like we did this and the way that you two reflect that, but also the fact that all she ever wants to do is, is help everybody. She just, wants <laughs> to, she just wants to help and she's learning along the way. So how can you not sort of feel for that character? You know, so. My heart crumbles my her <laughs> over and over and over again. Beautiful job. And I think it was that too. Like, you know, I never get to see what Courtney's doing until the final cut. So seeing if that, that lines up, you know, that's a really difficult thing playing. There's two people playing the same role just on a different timeline. Um, so seeing that and seeing if it, if it works, those two timelines, and it, and it really does, you know, and seeing she's very still. And I think um, I sort of played her a lot more, you know, with a lot more sort of facial expressions and, and more broken but very sort of tactile and, so that's really that's a really interesting space, but um, yeah, no, Courtney did a lovely job. She is one of the. The show is filled with the best. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I've spoken to quite a few of you at this point, and I know that you all have different approaches and, and kind of mentalities about the not knowing of playing these characters while working on the show, like not knowing what finally happened in the 90s timeline, not knowing what their time in between timelines was like. So what is your approach to all of that? Are you the type of actor who wants to press the showrunners with uh, with questions to get more information? Or do you kind of just, you know, let it go and, and do what you could do in the moment and... I don't know. I guess hope it aligns ultimately in the end. Well, I think, yeah, hope it aligns. I started when I came in, I was, I came in hot with questions like you did at the junket. You came in hot. I was like, wow, she's amazing. I wasn't wasting any time. You weren't wasting any time because you were going to room to room and we were all sitting there and you came and I was like, oh my God, she's smart. She's funny. And she's giving it to us, you know? And so, um, which is great, which is really great. Um, but yeah, with the showrunners, I purpose at the beginning, I was very kind of like, so tell me, tell me, tell me. And they don't give a lot at all. And so I sort of realized that. So I stood back and I thought, you know what? Be like Lottie, trust the process. And so what I was learning playing Lottie, I was bringing into my personal life. I just let it go. It's all it's all going to work out. It's all going to land perfectly. And it, and it did, you know. So I would, oh, I would have loved to have asked them, but I didn't want to be there. That needy actress, please. Who have some more? <laughs> who, who, who is who's the who is the one who asks the most questions that you all know that you could go to when you want like little secrets about what's to come? Well, I think I think Tawny is amazing because she she seems to know what's happening all the time, and she's so cool with it. So Tawny sort of seems to know. Christina seems to know as well. Um, I think Lauren asks the big questions and yeah, I think those three sort of seem to know what's going on a lot more than, well, myself, I can't speak for Melanie, but, um, yeah, they're, they're across it. They're, they're powerhouse. I'm filing this all away for the season three junket. Good. Now I know, now I know know who to go after for details. Um, And I'll say, wow, where did you get that from? And you go, well, actually, Simone. (laughs) So I will preface this next question by saying like, none of this has to be canon. It is just for you and your own headspace when playing this character. But is there any specific element of her story where like you had to come up with the backstory in order to play the moment and make her experience feel full, even if that backstory element is not something that holds true later on? Yeah, I think all of those choices, because I haven't I had no background on where Lottie had been and what had happened and why she suddenly has this glorious cult following and she lives on this, you know, community that is rich with living off the land and everything. So I sort of had to join my own dots in my head. And um, and for a lot of those scenes as well, she's, you know, she's, she's giving a lot. There were a few scenes cut um, of all her sermons, I'm going to call them, um, which is a shame, but I guess you get it. You know, she's delivering love and peace and, and wants everyone to heal through past trauma. So I, I sort of had to fill in the dots of who her gurus were, who her teachings were from. So I kind of, I did my homework on that. And I remember when I was very young, I, 
I was obsessed with Louise Hay. I don't know if you know who she is, but she was visual affirmations and visualizing, you know, I love and approve of myself. She's that. And uh, so I went back and I found my Louise Hay books and I really sort of dug into those again. And that's a lovely place to be in, you know, um, and and just finding why she cares so much. And that was one of my questions to the showrunners. Does she genuinely want to help people? And they were like, absolutely, she does. So with that little little note, I could then create what you then saw, you know, because I came from truth then. But if I thought she was just kind of doing it for money as a bit of a side hustle, then I'd be like, mm. but no, she's she's true. She's gold. I feel like they should release some of those deleted scenes. Hold us over until next time. Right? Maybe there'll be little flashbacks. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> the season just finished. I'm greedy and I want more. <laughs> Speaking of, of influences, this can kind of lead us into episode seven in particular for an in-show influence. The answer to this might be a no, but I'm curious with the therapist who is like not really there do you think that that actual human played a role in her life prior and that's why she visualizes her that way oh that's a great thought and question I hope so because the actress was wonderful who played her she was wonderful she comes from a theater background and she's uh, she's Canadian and god she was great to work with and I hope that's something I hope she comes back maybe she yeah maybe she was a therapist at her institution you know and that's visualizing. That. yeah and maybe she was so um so in Lottie's life coming through the those earlier days yeah I hadn't thought of that I hadn't thought of that that's a great thought that's like an obsessive's job who pours over every frame too much this next question can can reflect that a little too so when she leaves that session she goes back to the group and she tells everybody i think you should all go home why why do you think she doesn't immediately go back to them and embrace the idea of needing to do another hunt what gives her hesitation then but not like mere moments later right um i think the understanding was they all need to go because something bad's about to happen. Something really bad is about to happen. But she she does say, but seeing them and being here, I feel it in my body and it feels wonderful. You know, it feels like this family has come back to her. So it's that, that you know, the tug and that the, she really wants to embrace the sisterhood that's there. And she's always on her own, Lottie. She's always apart from everybody else, you know, so... She, she feels this beautiful connection to these women, but something is terrifying her because she knows something awful is about to happen. It's like, it, it would be, it would be like, go, the house is on fire, go. I can't, I can't mentally have you all here because I will, I'm, something's about to happen, but she doesn't know how to say that. And then, um, and, there, and Natalie's like, come on, kind of, you know, and so we've already heard that she loves having them here in a way. Um, and so then she just kind of, yeah, gets drunk with them, which I think is really fun. That was really good. The house being on fire was a good descriptor right there. Right. The house is on fire. (laughs) The cabin. Yeah. Your answer there was just making me think of a question I had asked somebody else. But at the end of season two, who do you think Lottie trusts the most of all of the surviving Yellow Jackets? Oh, I think without a doubt, Van. You know, I think... I think that connection with Van, because when she's in the, she's in the cabin on the sharing shack at the end of eight, and she's just like, all of you have done horrendous things. You're all, you know, you've had a lover and you're, 
you know, you almost killed your wife to Thaisa and, and Mr. You did actually kill somebody. And, and Natalie, you tried to kill yourself. And Van, the only thing with Van is she says this light has gone off in you. And she knows something's wrong and she can sense that and see that. And Van sort of put it on the spot. But that's a connection. You know, I mean, if you were with a friend and they're like, what's up? Something's up. What's going on? You know, and and then Van is the one who really sticks up for her. And she's like, she's like this because of us. Um, and then right at the end, the line is delivered to her. It's all going to be OK. You'll see, you know. And so that's a really lovely connection. Um who knows what's happened between them prior? I don't know. Um, I don't know. But I do know that the van is the only one who's really got her back and is really supporting Lottie and can see her mental health. And Van's been in a video shop for the past 20 years and living her world in very, very private, you know. And so I think there's something to be said about that as well. Mm. You feel that connection because yeah. you bring up that circle scene. This is another thing I was wondering. So Lottie goes goes around and she tells them all something they've either like done wrong or something something negative that's been happening to them. If she also gave an answer for herself in that moment, what do you think she would say? Wow, I think maybe that was in my notes when I was prepping that scene. Like, what if I shot? If I held the mirror up to myself, what would it be? <laughs> um, and I think for Lottie, it's the fact that. She can't, she's out, she's not in touch. She hasn't done her own work. She's great at, they say a lot of psychiatrists are amazing at giving out, you know, advice and everything, but behind closed doors, they're a hot mess. And so I think for Lottie, she still wears the trauma of what happened with Travis, right? Remember that little incident? She had a vision. I'm very curious to learn more about that too. And the button just happened to break. Oh, you know, like, well, she knows that the vision she has is so overwhelming that, you know, but it's it's a schizophrenia of sorts and it's a, a duality of personalities and she can't control her vision. So in a way she's like, I need help too. I need to understand what's happening for me. But she doesn't kill people. Do you think that she carries around guilt over what happened to Travis or is she quicker to blame the wilderness influence there and write it off as, as something that she didn't directly do? Yeah, it's really interesting because in that episode, we did so many different versions of that. I know you guys do that. <laughs> yeah, and I did many different sort of versions of like hand on heart. I had nothing to do with it. And, and then I remember um, Juliet Natalie says, what, come on, the button broke kind of thing. And she's like, I swear, I, it, it wasn't me or something like that. And you're like, mm, was it? Because I don't think she knows. I don't think Lottie knows a lot of the time because she's in a different state. Just like she's in a state right at the end of the season finale when she's there and she's like, you know, grazed in the arm and, and she's looking at them going, this is she's not present. So she's, yeah, she's in a different world at that stage. I feel like I've asked someone this before, but I, I think this question can apply to literally all of your characters. When when you're playing someone who is in that state and, you know, also how different she is at the beginning of the season versus the end, do you need to pinpoint a specific anchor for her, something to base all of her decisions in some sort of consistent truth? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I think of it like that. I think... I think because she's constantly changing, 
I think Lottie is constantly just, you know, she's just moving in the wind, the wilderness or something. I, I can't anchor it to one specific thing. And also I don't know with the writers, you can't be too stuck on one specific thing because they might then suddenly do a flashback of something that's happened to your character and you're like, oh, well, that completely changes that choice. So you have to be very careful in being really like stuck on one's kind of yeah. anchor. Everyone's ability to make their characters feel all over the place, but also so cohesive at the same time and all of their actions make some sort of sense. I, I don't understand how you all do it. I know, I know. I'm watch When I watched it, because I watched it in real time with everybody, um, other than the things I'd seen on in ADR and um, just seeing even Melanie, how she she kind of grapples with what's going, you know, it's so beautifully done. And, and she does it in a way where she's like, I just, you know, and then she bursts into tears or she just has a little panic attack and it's it's really well done. Her um, little nuances are some of my favorite things in the show. Like there's so many like reactions and just like like line deliveries that she gives that I would think to myself, if I read it on the page, I never would have heard it that way. That is like your way and your way alone. Yeah. And she really did that wonderfully in the in the sharing shack when they're talking about everything and and, and they're all accusing each other. And Van and Lottie are just sitting there like, what has gone on with you three, you four? You know, like, what is going on? Um, yeah, but Melanie does that. She does it so well. As does Christina and and Tawny. They, we've all have found our own little vices of how we can kind of flash quickly to our past and then pull it back within the character. Yeah. So is, wait, is that, can I get as specific to ask if it's a specific like tool or technique or like one consistent idea that you use to do that? Yeah, I think for me personally, I just kind of I find a, I find something that in my own personal life that if you if you kept asking me, I'd burst into tears or I'd walk out of the room. I find something that's still on the surface for me as Simone, and then I tap it ever so slightly, mm, and then I, it, it gives me a layer and it, it makes me like I can feel it, and then I I, I drop it. That's Another thing that impresses me about about someone who who does a craft like this the the willingness and ability to do that, but also you know practice self care in, in the process and know when and how to pull yourself out of it. Yeah, and in fact, after that whole the Travis scenes, you know, when he's hanging and she's, I mean, they they cut it very quickly because it's a flashback that she's telling. Then Natalie Lottie's telling Natalie, and when he's hanging, and the, the night we did that was a very, very long night filming, and we were in a barn, and it was freezing, and the stunty was hanging there, literally, literally, <laughs> he was hanging there in the back of my shot, and then I turn and I just see the feet, and I see that, and we're there. It really had to to go to some very painful things for myself, and that's where I go to. So it's you know. And the week after, I got so sick. <laughs> I got myself so run down because I was so traumatized. And like a month earlier, my dog had died as well. Oh, God. <laughs> and I've been so busy getting prepped for Lottie and moving to Vancouver oh, and everything that I think everything just sort of overcame me. And then my grief for this Lottie's, for, for Travis and what had happened and my and my my yearning and loss of my dog, it all came up. And then I was so sick that week after. And then Chinese medicine, they say when the lungs, it's grief and I couldn't stop coughing. I had this terrible cough. Oh, so okay. I'm wondering now if that was all, you know. So oh, that's yeah. something else. Yeah. Uh, like, 
as a positive spin on that, bring going back to Mudu, my my cat had just passed, who was like my soulmate right before Tiff. And I'm very convinced that covering so many movies I loved and being steeped in that world to such an extent at a festival, yeah. that's kind of what pulled me out of it and helped me forge forward. Right. And that's what you need. And that's exactly yeah. that's exactly right. And then if you let it in, it just breaks you. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes we need to be sort of like, you know, taken out of that world. But, yeah, when a pet dies, it's just oh, <laughs> the worst. And yeah. and nobody, you can't really, people understand it, but until it sort of happens to you, mm-hmm. it's devastating. But, yeah, that was, yeah, so for all of that stuff, it, you know, so that's what I try to do. I, I try to tap into something and then let it go. So... <laughs> Not e- not easy, but it winds up uh, producing a great show. I have to let you go soon. So here are some obnoxiously hyper-specific questions. First, one thing I, I'm wondering about, because I heard that the cards that everybody picks were scripted in the 90s timeline. Were they all scripted in your timeline as well? I think they were. I think they were because I know when we were doing it on the evening, art department would come in and be like, okay, the second card is your card. The third card is your card. And so we all, we weren't just randomly pulling out, you know, these cards. We had our cards, obviously for continuity. Um, And that, yes, Melanie wants to draw. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, that was completely scripted, yes. I am fully convinced they all mean something and I have them like all written down and I'm gonna solve a puzzle or something. I I don't know. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, 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 they were scripted for that, get us around and then Lottie's, you know, obsessive again, 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 kind of thing. And then the wheels fall off. Such a great sequence. So a specific line or a couple lines that happen here. So Shauna eventually says to you, you know, there's no it, right? It was just us. And then Lottie replies, is there a difference? So in that moment, if she was asked to define what it was, how might she describe it? That's such a hard question. Because so many... I can't answer it. That's why I posed it to you. <laughs> That's why you're asking me. Damn. Um, I wish I knew. I feel that it, is there a difference? It, you know, there's no it. There isn't it. The it is what happened to them. The it is, because all they're all in denial. I don't know if you've noticed, but everyone's like, you know, and at the beginning, Lottie was like, it isn't real. It never happened kind of thing, right? And they're all in this weird denial. It is what happened and the eating of their friends. I think you are right. I think the it is what happened. And I don't think anything that happened in the 90s timeline was supernatural. It was just like uncontrollable human responses to a wild situation. Absolutely. And that we ate Jackie and that we ate Harvey. And who else are we going to eat? I know. You know, I so know. that is it. And nobody ever talks about that. There's no mention of it in the present day characters of the cannibalism. So that's what it is. And it's a combination of that. I don't think it's a supernatural thing. I don't know. Maybe the writers are thinking, of course, it's a supernatural thing. But I, 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 can't, I, don't, I didn't play it like that. I think I played the, the idea of it is what we did in order to survive. And that's what's happening right now. Well, this is something else that's mentioned in one of the episodes. How much do you think Lottie remembers what happens in what happens in the wilderness with clarity? 
Yes, because she says, not now, Natalie, doesn't she? She looks at her and she's like, not now, not, let's not go there now. And it's such a great moment. That was really cool, actually. I love that scene because we are all sitting around. It's before we get up and start dancing and it's like, now's not the time. Let's not bring that up. That's so cool. <laughs> That's so cool. I want to tap into more of that because what do they remember? What are they hiding? They all remember it. They, have, yes. they never talk about it. We never sit there and go as adults because it's all talked about so much in the past, right? But as the adult present day actors, we never say, what about that time? Like it's all re- like it's all repressed, but if they actually opened up and talked about it, it would come flooding back. And the sacrifice and the masks and the knives, it's played out, but it's never spoken about. It's, it's like when, as we would talk about, you know, if we were at a high school reunion, we'd talk about, oh my God, remember when we were in so-and-so's class and Mrs. So-and-so did that. So yeah, that's interesting. I wish we'd, I wish we'd all answered. I wish the characters had all answered and said, well, the one thing I remember is. There's going to be many more episodes to explore that more and more, more opportunities. Another big burning question for you, because I I just didn't expect, uh, I was talking to Christine, I didn't expect her to say this particular thing with such like clarity and authority. Do you think Lottie believes that she was ever the first antler queen? I think so. I think so, yeah. I mean, even to this day, I'm a bit confused about the antler queen. When Christina said that to me, I was asking her why Misty had such a strong connection with Natalie. And she goes, like, like it was a matter of fact, like, oh, it's because she's the first antler queen. Like, what about Lottie? Yeah, really? See, I don't know that. I thought, I think it's all handed to them all. I don't know if it's like the first or the second or the third. I feel that Lottie and her connection to the wilderness and her spirituality connected, created this this ultimate kind of antler queen. And then as the strength moves through the group, whoever is in the position of leading these women takes on the role as the antler queen. So it could have gone through then Taysa, it could have then gone to Van, and maybe it does throughout. But yeah, I think Lottie maybe created the antler queen as such. And that's what why all the women started to like follow what she said and give sacrifices and and sit holding hands outside and give gratitude to the wilderness. I think, yeah. Yeah. That's what I In my head canon, Lottie is number one and then Natalie is the second antler queen. I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna go with that. I like that, so. Yeah. All right, I must let you go. I could talk to you all day about this show. I can't wait to do it again for season three. Congratulations. Congratulations on Yellow Jackets, but also everything you've accomplished. You are welcome back to Collider Ladies Night anytime you want. Thank you so much for having me.